Hi, it's Guy here. Welcome to episode 39 of Creative Forces, uh, the podcast where I interview creative people, find out what makes them tick, what how they've got to where they've got to today. Uh, before I tell you about uh, who's on this episode, um, I just wanted to read out an email that I got from a listener, which was really nice, and I wanted to share with you. This is from Jamie, who emailed me to say, Hello, I'd like to say thank you very much for your podcasts. It is both pleasing and refreshing to hear British entrepreneurs and creatives being interviewed, and Northern too, in brackets, as usually all I can find is American podcasts. I listen to these while I'm working on my part-time eBay business or when on the bus on my way to my full-time job. Thanks very much. And thank you to you, Jamie. It's great to hear from you. Um, really glad you enjoy the podcast. Hope you're enjoying these latest three episodes um, after my uh, hiatus for having a second child. Uh, yeah, so I hope you enjoy this episode. If, if anyone else wants to get in touch, please do creativeforcespod at gmail.com or using Twitter at creativeforcesp. There's a Facebook page too if you want to get me there, although I don't look at Facebook very much, I'm going to be honest. So email or Twitter probably best. Uh, but yeah, Jamie, thanks for being in touch. I'm really glad you enjoy everything and I hope you enjoy th this episode. This is uh, an interview with Andrew McMillan. So Andrew is a poet and lecturer in creative writing. Uh, his debut poetry collection, Physical, which was published in 2015, won a whole host of prizes it was the first poetry collection as well to win the guardian first book award um, and earlier this year it was voted one of the top 25 poetry books of the last quarter of a century by the booksellers association so it made a big impact when it came out and and andrew's a really really interesting guy he was he grew up in darfield south yorkshire and he spent his early years actually looking to go into politics uh, but he switched to poetry uh, in his late teens uh, when he went to to college to university to study to study english um, and in this interview you can hear andrew describe why he decided politics wasn't right for him how he dealt with the sort of success of his first collection of poetry and the merry-go-round of awards ceremonies uh, when that book took off also why he really enjoys teaching and of course he does mention the influence his dad ian had a former creative forces podcast interview ego back through the archive to find him the poet ian mcmillan he talks about the influence that ian had on his career now i met andrew for this interview at the manchester writing school the home of the manchester writing school which is actually the old corner house building now if, any, if anyone's been to manchester or you spent any time in manchester you'll know about the corner house it was for many years a big sort of art center cinema uh which i spent a lot of time at and a lot of my friends did but it's now the majority of its sort of arts functions have moved to a place called home a purpose-built place in manchester but now it's the temporary home of the manchester writing school so we spoke a bit about that uh, we, we actually met in a classroom there one of the old rooms which is now a classroom and you will probably hear in the first sort of 20, 25 minutes of this podcast, some background noise. That is what sounded like people in the room above fitting a kitchen or doing something similar, moving industrial equipment. There was a lot of moving of stuff, a lot of scraping. So apologies if that is distracting. It does stop after a while. But actually, it's always nice, in the, from someone from the back, a radio background, it's always nice to have a bit of Atmos, as they call it. So I'm putting it down to that. Uh, but hopefully it's not too distracting. Uh, I hope you enjoy the interview. So we were just saying a minute ago, uh, when we when I arrived here, that this we're recording in the Corner House, which is now part of the... which where the Manchester Writing School is based, yeah. is that right? But this was... <laughs> There's some serious banging going on above us. Don't quite know what it is, but we'll see how long it lasts. The this was the corner house, which was the sort of 
one of the main sort of cultural art centres in Manchester for years and years. Yeah. And I used to come here loads. And it feels weird seeing it as a sort of academic building rather than the cinema and bar and space that it was. So, yeah, was, was it somewhere that you came a lot? Yeah, before? a lot. And it's, it's still weird for me every single day because it's, it's got that really, it's like that kind of uncanny thing of thinking, oh, but I've sat, I've definitely sat and had a date there. Or I've been <laughs> drunk there and that's where I've sat and had a meal. And now that's a student computer deck and things like that. But it's nice to, it's, it's just one of those weird kind of turns of fate that I then end up working here. Yeah. as a writer like that was when I was kind of coming when I was a lot younger to see these weird films and it'd be you and one other person in the cinema kind of watching some strange yeah. Lithuanian drama or something like that like it, it's it's a strange thing to then come back and inhabit that space as a kind of professional um, but but it's great it's great that we get to be here I think and it means that it, we get to keep it open for a bit longer yeah you were saying it's, it doesn't look likely it's going to stay open that much longer I don't think so I mean I think the plan is so we're building a kind of big new library and arts and humanities building which will be really exciting new poetry library so we'll move into that next year and then some colleagues from another department will come in for a bit I think um, but my understanding is the ultimate plan is that um, Oxford Road generally will be redeveloped and yeah. then we'll see what happens it's a shame because as I say yeah as, and as you said it's it was such a big thing the, it has been such a big thing the corner house for so long and as you say like the bar I spent many nights in the bar yeah. in the cafe upstairs as well it seems films a shame for it to go completely films that you would never see anywhere else yeah and that don't necessarily get shown at home anymore either which mm. has a which slight, is the replacement yeah wasn't it yeah and it has a slightly different kind of outlook I think or slightly different agenda mm. um but yeah, here, it was like, you know, you'd pay five pounds and see there was like a, there'd be like an Argentinian film festival on all weekend that <laughs> yeah. no one would come to. And it obviously wasn't financially viable, but it was amazing. And it felt like a really, like almost, a, it, it felt very much a kind of a beacon during that moment of the recession. So yeah. it would have been kind of just after the kind of crash that I would be kind of coming, I guess. Right. Um, so it felt like a really important, yeah, really important just cultural monument i guess yeah so um, what what brought you to manchester then in the first place so i'd been in lancaster for uni and then which is a strange place to go to university because it's such a small town I mean, it's not a city really it's a yeah. very kind of small town the university is kind of two or three miles out on a campus yeah, huge campus isn't yeah, it? yeah. Um, this kind of weird 60s brutalist kind of campus as well it rains relentlessly in lancaster more <laughs> than it does here from about <laughs> march to january um and so it, just, it was a very strange place to go to university. And it's, it was a weird thing of... There's there's University of Cumbria had a base there as well. Right. So, and I just eventually kind of realised, maybe two years in, that I wasn't meeting any student, anybody that was my age who wasn't a student. Mm. And that's just a weird thing. And so and Manchester became a place where me and my friends would come out to have nights out and yeah. to have... Um, a kind of queer night out as well, that kind of the Canal Street scene, yeah. uh, which there kind of wasn't in Lancaster either. So when I graduated, I moved back to Barnsley for a bit. I was renting a flat there. Um, but then <clears throat> Manchester was just... Manchester felt like the place where I needed to end up, really. So I've been here on and off, sort of seven, maybe eight years now, I think. Mm. Um, lived in Liverpool for a couple of years and then ended up back here as well. So what were you doing when you first got to Manchester then? Was, was, that, was the poetry writing in full swing then or were you still working that out? Yeah, no, I was kind of freelance. So I went freelance um, as soon as I'd left university. Um, and the first kind of gig or job that I got out of university was 
It was when there was a lot of money swash, um, kind of swimming around for the cultural Olympiad stuff for the mm. Olympics in 2012. What was the course at the university, by the way? Um, English, English Lit. Right. Um, and I did... Um, so I applied for this job, which was to write a series of poems about over-50s amateur cricketers in Yorkshire right. around the theme of movement. <laughs> Um, and got that and did that. And then I did this thing for the Watershed Landscape Project, who are part of Pennine Prospects, who are still going as a kind of um, Pennine kind of landscape um, organisation. And it was like this kind of golden thing, really. I think there was something like 35 days of paid work over the course of a year, but with no impetus to produce any of your own work if you didn't want to and very little engagement work so really they were paying you just to explore this landscape and to write and I kind of naively at university thought oh god this is going to be the easiest thing in the world being freelance (laughs) I don't know what people are on about like I've got this amazing kind of long-term residency I've got this kind of um, writing commission and so I was doing that and I did that for sort of three or four years really kind of quite intensely paid myself through the master's degree that I did at UCL in London, but commuted down, which is, was a bonkers idea. <laughs> so I went down to London once a week to do that, right. um, or invariably didn't go, um, <laughs> because it was a long way away. Was that on the train? Pardon? Was that on the train? Yeah, yeah, getting the train down and things yeah. like that. Um, and it was, yeah, just doing a lot of schools work, a lot of kind of community engagement work, a lot of work with like young offenders and things like that, because that was the kind of model of it that I'd grown up with. And I assumed that's what it was, or I, I kind of thought that that's what, or I knew that's what I had to do if I wanted to earn a living. Hmm. I'm just not built really for a kind of freelance life. It makes me too anxious. Oh, really? Why is that? I'm, well, I think partly I'm just not very good with money and right. never really have been. And so, I mean, freelance kind of works in that you will get paid somehow quite a lot for one little thing, but yeah. then you don't realise that that has to, oh, I never realised that has to last me for like four months, <laughs> and then I've got to pay tax, and then I always mess my tax bill up. I still do every single time. Yeah. Forget that I've got to pay tax bill in January. <laughs> um, and I think my golden idea of it was that if I do two or three days a week freelance, that then I'll have the rest of the time that'll pay me to write what yeah. I want to write. So I'd, I've always been fine with doing stuff that I don't really want to do necessarily or okay. work that I find quite hard or writing poems for things that I don't necessarily, I wouldn't be moved to write about if I wasn't being paid. I've always been fine with that because I always felt that it would pay me to have two or three days to myself to write yeah. um, and to do my own thing. But actually what happens is you spend two or three days like on arts jobs frantically looking for anything yeah, else. Like yeah. th- that kind of empty space gets filled with a kind of, for me, like a manic search for work. And going, I could be a ceramicist for a day in yeah. Cheadle or I could like teach that and or just chasing invoices, just relentlessly chasing being paid. Yeah. Um, and it just happened that eventually some of the work that I was doing led to... Um, doing a couple of kind of one-off workshops, first at Sheffield University, and then through that getting involved in some of their research council projects, Mm -hmm. and then through that doing a bit of kind of associate lecturing at Edge Hill, Um, and then I was at John Moore's Mm -hmm. part-time, and then was finally full-time. So I still do the kind of bits and bobs of freelance stuff, but it means now that I'm full-time here Mm -hmm. at Manchester Met, that it's on my own terms, really, and I can agree, I can do the things I want to do. And does that sit a bit better with your brain, having that sort of full-time, you don't have to worry about the money, the invoices, all that stuff? Yeah, it it, it honestly really does, like, I'm just not built for it, and I think um, (laughs) I just, it it made me far too anxious, I couldn't live like that, whereas now, 
you know, like you say, what I earn here on a very practical level pays the mortgage, yeah. pays the bills. It means that um, I've just got headspace to do the writing I want to do. If someone asks, if, you know, commissions come in or if there's kind of offers to do workshops and things like that, I don't have to do them. No. If I don't want to. Yeah. Um, although I still, you know, I still like to do them and I still say yes where I can, but it, it means that that kind of pressure's off. Hmm. But that I'm still talking about, the thing I used to love about being freelance was I always thought I'm talking about poetry all the time. So hmm. keep that's what I needed, something to keep me engaged. And here, it's the same thing. It's just on a slightly different level, but I'm yeah. still just talking about poetry mostly to my students all the time so I still have to keep reading I still have to keep kind of reading their work as well mm. so I still feel very much engaged in that world I could never have what I would think of as like a proper job <laughs> they still still doesn't feel like a proper job in that sense <laughs> in I the sense I, that it's not like nine to five you mean or? yeah and you know we get a lot of freedom yeah um, as academics but also just because I feel like I'm lucky to be able to talk about something that I really love yeah um so in that sense, it still feels like a win. It's just, it, it, there's a lot more security. Yeah. And it relaxes me more. And I can write out of, I can write from that kind of space of relaxation. Yeah. And does it give you enough time then to do your own stuff? Or? I mean, not really, but <laughs> um, every so often, I write a lot. And so, I mean, it's weird with poetry. And poetry, I think, can happen, or happens for me around the, has always been able to happen around the margins of my own life. Right. And so I can write it on the bus or on the tram or like, in snatches of time yeah. in the last couple of years when I've been doing other stuff like I just um, had a play that I had to write so I've been yeah. working on some non-fiction stuff that's new for me in that I have to carve out full days and sit at a desk from nine to five and try and write and I'm not used to doing that no. so that feels to me like a different skill right um, and that's when I've noticed the kind of pressure of time because yeah. with poetry until you kind of start editing it at least for me it just happens when it, you snatch time to kind of steal bits of it. Yeah. Whereas working on something like a play just needed just to inhabit the world of it. Yeah. Needed full days. And that was a really new thing for me. Yeah. And with the poetry then, you know, you say you do it like snap, you can do it anywhere. Is that with a notebook that you always have or is it on your phone or how do you record what you're, you um, know, the actual, the poems as they come with, out? With a notebook, I still, right. I still believe in writing longhand. <laughs> I think it's really important. Um, especially at first, um, and so scribbling, I mean, every so often, you know, if you've not got one on you, making a note on one of your notes on your iPhone kind of thing. Yeah. But invariably, yeah, kind of just scribbling things down longhand still and then working through them. And then when something's typed up, it always feels not finished, but it, that feels somehow complete or that feels mm. more solid. Mm. And I think it's harder than to edit it. So it's a kind of process of handwriting, typing it up, printing it off and then scribbling physically longhand on it again and then typing it up again and then printing and going mm. through that quite a few times. There's something about seeing it in a, just in a font on a screen makes it feel finished yeah. in a way that it, it isn't and that's not conducive to kind of good editing, I don't think. Yeah. Why is it important then to still, you know, still write it out then? You say it's, you think it's important to do that? I think so. I think With it's a pen, as in longhand. Yeah, there's something about the messiness of it yeah. Uh, not just because my handwriting's terrible, but something <laughs> about the the mess of that process. Um, and, it, and it means that you can kind of move around the page in different ways. It means that you don't have to kind of faff about with words or whatever you're using, kind of capitalizing every line to start off with or kind of hugging close to this kind of left-hand margin yeah. just automatically. It, and it just means that the thoughts can kind of come in yeah. a much easier way, I think. And, it, right. and that it doesn't feel like a solid thing you can kind of kid yourself that it's just notes at first yeah and then you type it up and then try and shape it and then and it also means that then 
you're always one step ahead because by the time you type it up, because you're editing it as you type it up anyway, so you're kind of going, oh, oh, I'll just change that one word as I type it up. So already by the time you get a first draft onto a computer, that's probably already the second or third draft of it. Mm. I mean, what I've got much better at doing, just the more experience I've got, is writing more in my head. So I've got been able to get to a space now where if I sit down and try and write something, it comes out almost as a full draft straight away. Really? Which isn't because it's just kind of flowing out like that, right. but just because I've kind of carried it around oftentimes for a month or two and kind of added to it in my head. Or so you're kind of, kind of editing stuff. in your head? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. And I like that much more then because then some, almost like a kind of jug of water that you pour onto the page yeah. when it's full. And then there's just something satisfying about that process because it means it comes out much quicker onto the page and you can kid yourself that it's just emerged like that from nowhere. Do you ever worry, though, that it's, you might just w- wake up one morning and you've forgotten the first line? or you've, Yeah, you know. all the time. But I always think if it's worth, and this is probably not true, I think if it's worth remembering that I'll remember it. Yeah. But then I always think there's probably others perfect, the perfect lines that could have changed the world yeah. that are just somehow lost. <laughs> to you know life somewhere and does it just do ideas just sort of as you say on the sort of you know the margins or periphery of life does it just pop in like right i need to write something about that or is it more percolates for a long time it seems to percolate for a long time i still get those lines that come from wherever it is that they come from for people and they just kind of emerge or like a phrase comes and then that's often what i'll turn around a lot in my head or just wonder why hmm. i'm interested in it why i've never been very good at and what I've never really convinced leads to good poetry is to sit down and go, I'm going to write about, the, I'm going to write a poem now about this. And then yeah. it, that feels kind of very static. Um, I'm much more interested in kind of surprising myself, just having, going to the page with a notion of mm. why am I interested in this and kind of asking that question of the poem and letting that, especially in the early drafts, kind of feel itself out. And almost just let the words come out. Yeah, without and then thinking just, too much about it work it out later yeah. or impose a narrative on it later or impose some order on it later hmm. but that notion of I'll sit down and write a 20 line poem that's about this this and this there'll be a funny image in line 5 and it'll end up with a great epiphany about hmm. my marriage or whatever it is it's like I can't to me that can't be kind of fathomed or yeah. that doesn't that doesn't ever work for me um, so it's always a much more kind of loose approach of just waiting for it to shape itself somehow I think yeah and yeah, I mean, you were saying about the teaching here. I mean, how do you find the teaching? Is that something that you enjoy? Yeah, I love it. I always loved kind of doing it in schools and stuff like that when I was freelance. There's just something about being able to talk about ideas and bringing poems. So I do a bit of teach on the lit side, but mainly on the kind of creative writing side. So it means right. we can just also be pulled by our own interests or the interests of the group and bringing poems. I've been teaching a poem in the last couple of weeks that... I just kind of found online and was like, God, I love this poem and I don't know why, but let's see what other people say about it. And yeah. I teach a contemporary poetry unit for the MA, which is just reading 10 very good poetry books that have been published in the sort of last two or three years. Yeah. And that's amazing. It's just like having a, a, an extended reading group or something like yeah. that. And I love it. And it just keeps me thinking about it. And what it did when I first started teaching when I was kind of, I had a kind of part-time job at Liverpool John Moores, yeah. is I, it suddenly made me take my own writing more seriously. Because there was something about, I was going in two or three times a week and saying to students, I'm not sure about that word. I think that comma's in the wrong place. This stanza's not quite working. And I just, at one point, just had this switch where I thought, oh, I need, if I'm saying that to them, hmm. I need to say that to myself. And that mm-hmm. had never really occurred to me. It's not that I'd not taken it seriously, yeah. but I'd always kind of held it 
my own stuff at a slight distance and I suddenly thought, oh God, if, if this is what I'm doing now, mm. this is what I'm saying to people, people, I, I, it's expected or it's obvious that I should think that about my own work. Is that because you think people would be looking at your work in a different way maybe or i think so and also just because i thought that was themed fair yeah if i was saying yeah. that with the people's i should kind of practice what i preach yeah and that marked a real step change in what i thought about my own stuff or how seriously i was going to take it or what i wanted for it i think right in the world and do you think it improved as a result or do you think it's uh, not no change in that respect just different no i think it, i think it got much more um I think it got tighter. Mm. I think it just got much more kind of rigorously worked. Yeah. And less kind of, less glib or less, not less funny, but less kind of um, casual mm. and became much more um, formally kind of tight, I guess, because I was kind of interrogating every line. Mm. Um, and then that's kind of after that is when the first book kind of got accepted and things like that. Right, oh, I see. So it was actually after you'd gone through that process that you got first published. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so I'd done okay. pamphlets. Yeah. Um, I had three pamphlets out um, with Red Squirrel Press, who were based up in Newcastle, who were fantastic, who treated me really well. Hmm. Um, and who I always assumed and who, who, who had said would always do a first collection. And I kind of had this idea in my head of the sort of career that I would have. So I did a first pamphlet when I was still an undergrad. So when I was in like, in like 2009, hmm. Then there's one in 2011, there was one in 2013. And pamphlets are just amazing to try things out. Like the second one, the second pamphlet is really strange and <laughs> ironic and playful because that's what was like fashionable at the time, but I can't do that, so it was terrible. <laughs> and the third pamphlet is just one long poem that actually ends up in the first book. Right. Um, there's just one long poem about like the recession and Barnsley and love. I mean, that, it, it's better than that makes it sound. Um, <laughs> but... I just always imagined, I had this idea in my head of the career that I would have, which would be that they would then do a first collection, I would carry on doing a lot of community work, and yeah. that I would just be kind of a quiet, plausibly, kind of okay, kind of community-based poet. Yeah. Um, and that would have been fine, I was kind of really happy for that, like that wasn't a kind of slight on that kind of work. Mm. But then, I always thought, or some, I can't, either someone said to me, or I kind of always thought, like, you've got to try these kind of bigger publishers or these big guns and just because otherwise you'll never know and what I didn't want to do was be sat thinking oh I could have could have been yeah. a contender kind of yeah, thing yeah. or like to try and get knocked back I always thought was fine like I would never have been upset by that but I thought I want to try and I looked around at who was publishing the work that I loved reading hmm. which was like Sharon Olds and Mark Doty um, and it was Jonathan Kate. and so I thought well I'll try it and the worst they can say is no. <laughs> and then I'll just, you know, I've already got someone who I know will do a good job with the first book and they'll look after me. Mm. So I'll try it and just see. And Robin Robertson, who's their editor, said yes. Um, and that was that was when it really kind of shifted for me. So how did you go about that? Did you get an agent or was that, did you just approach them directly yourself? Yeah, so like with agents in poetry, there's no real point because there's no money in it. Right. Apart from for gigs. Right. And so what I have now is an agent who looks after like my diary for me. I see. And handles like other stuff like the play or like the non-fiction stuff I've been writing. They'll represent that. But like with poetry, they'd be kind of getting 10% of nothing <laughs> in terms of like, you know. Um, so there's not a huge amount of uh, agents out there looking for your for your business basically. I don't think so with poetry or like no. they would always be pushing you to do other stuff. Yeah. Um, and I 
So I never had one, and I only have one now because they approached me. Right. And it was at a point where I was just getting into a habit of like double booking. My, like there was just too much coming yeah. in that I couldn't kind of cope with. Um, but yeah, I just emailed him, found his email online, <laughs> emailed Robin, um, and just said, "Are you open to submissions?" And he said yes. And it just went into the slush. You know what I imagine is like the slush pile of all yeah. their things, and then. I remember it being quite quick, but him apologising for taking quite a while. Hmm. Maybe a month, maybe two months or three right. months. And then sort of rang me up and said, I really don't like these 15 pages. Right. <laughs> but if we take those out, <laughs> we'll give it a go. What was his problem with those 15 um, pages? They just weren't very good, which is fair. Um, so <laughs> actually the book that comes out in the end is very different to the one I submitted. Right. Um, because what it... What Robin does, which is really valuable and which very few publishers still do, is proper editing. Right. So, like, oh, I think that poem goes first because that announces what the book's about. Let's move that poem. This line's not working. That word's not working. Okay. Like, line by line, word by word, interrogation of... And not changing it for me, like, letting me answer these questions myself and leave things in if I wanted to. But just really interrogating the work. Um, Because they do very few poetry books a year. They only sort of do maybe four a year. Right. Because they're real... That real list is their fiction list. And so, like, Martin Amis and Irving Welsh and stuff, and like, that really pays for them to do the poetry that yeah. doesn't kind of bring in the masses of money for them. Um, but it means that because they're not doing many collections, that they can really spend time with each book, yeah. um, which was really great. And so that was accepted in 2014 and came out in 2015, which is also quite quick, yeah. um, a quick turnaround. So did that feel like quite a big step up, yeah. you know, going from pamphlets to being published by yeah and just a world that i wasn't despite obviously kind of how i grew up and kind of who my dad is and things like that a world that i just wasn't prepared for or didn't know really existed yeah which was which is just like trade publishing so there's now someone's job within so jonathan cape is part of vintage which is part of random house which is now (laughs) part of penguin random house so these massive conglomerate trade publishers there's someone whose job it is to just send me newspaper clippings if i'm in the newspaper really so like and not just me but like that's their job to like send authors newspaper clippings right and it's like god that exists we're going from a small press who, where it's like one person in their living room yeah. trying to do everything to kind of being taken down remember the first time I went down to London and I was really quite scared to meet Robin <laughs> I admired him for a long time and he's really sweet he's been really kind to me right. and he took me to this restaurant where I just didn't understand the menu <laughs> because it was too fancy but I, did, I didn't say anything so I ended up ordering two large heritage tomatoes on a plate and he just kept looking at me going are you sure that's all you want I was like yeah this is this. I love this this is my favourite thing and he's like sat there with like some got it. fish dinner um, I, was, I had my two heritage tomatoes um, it was fine um, but it was just it and then kind of had, I remember having this meeting with their kind of publicity person. And yeah. he was like, oh, we should get you to write stuff for this newspaper about it and stuff like that. And just kind of being overwhelmed. Because I'd never realized that that's yeah. what happened or kind of how it worked. And then, so it was just this, then just this amazing kind of, after it came out, amazing 18 months of readings and then kind of the price stuff as well. Um it was just what's yeah. that the prize stuff? The, like the prize the prizes that oh, prizes, won, so the kind yeah. of weird prize culture of it all that yeah. I again was just utterly so you're going to some do's basically baffled to me yeah just <laughs> and getting in, terribly drunk at everything <laughs> 
There's the one, there's this, it's now forever immortalised in the Guardian book podcast. Right. When they gave me the Guardian First Book Award, Robin was like, you're not, no poet had ever won it. So Robin was like, you're not going to win. So he took me out for lunch and got me drunk. So like, you're not going to win, it's fine. <laughs> then, went back to his, then I went back to my hotel to try desperately to sober up. Then went to his office and he got a bottle of wine out of the fridge. Oh, I was no. like, you're not going to win, so it's fine. And then went to this thing, there's just loads of free wine. And I'm so intimidated in those kind of spaces yeah. that I just drink to feel comfortable. Yeah. Just got so drunk. And then they announced that I <laughs> They'd like get up on stage and like stumble through like a thank you thing, which was fine. <laughs> then they grabbed me straight away and went, you've got to come and record the podcast now. Oh, no. And I was like, I'm steaming. <laughs> So like there's just this so moment. So you just came clean straight away. Just this this moment in the podcast where I just go, I just think winning this is just the falafel, <laughs> and then just don't say anything else. And there's just this really hideous pause for like a minute where they're like, right, okay. <laughs> but um, you know, did you like ever explain what that no, meant? No, I, I still don't <laughs> no know what needs. that meant. <laughs> do you kind of enjoy those? awards do or do you, do you feel a bit as you said it's all a bit intimidating they're very strange like they're not um, I mean it's obviously love, lovely mm. and I met what he does do is like you end up in the same room a lot with the same writers who had books out in the same year so like yeah. I got really close to like Max Porter who right. wrote Brief is the Thing with Feathers because we were just kind of at the same stuff all <coughs> the time they're such right, intense yeah. um, kind of emotional things that you just get very close to people Um and they're just very strange things. Like, they're, if you win, there's this kind of moment of euphoria, obviously, but then there's just a lot of technical stuff you have to go and do, like have your photo took, give that yeah. interview, do that. If you don't win, it kind of just stops. It's this very weird thing where... I remember the Dylan Thomas one. We went down to Swansea, me and my boyfriend, and, we knew, and I knew Max would win, and he should have done, and he <laughs> did. And then we had a quick drink afterwards. Then we were like... It just kind of stops. Yeah. And I remember just going, oh, but we're stuck in Swansea. <laughs> so we just like went and saw a Helen Mirren film and then watched Eurovision in t- on TV in our <laughs> hotel. And it's that kind of, it's that weird, just very it's, sudden yeah. kind of cut off of... Right, it's all it. or nothing. And it, yeah, and it kind of, the kind of, um, the show just kind of shifts somehow or it yeah. kind of, it feels like a cut off. Yeah. Um, and so kind of riding that, wave of just very and because it kind of comes every so often there'd be like robbing a drink you've got oh it's going to be on the short list oh it's this is going to happen but these kind of peaks and troughs of it and then it'd go back to nothing yeah and that was just a weird a very very strange thing to deal with because it's like these hyper intense moments followed by a lot of quietness and then yeah. another hyper intense moment whilst everyone around you thinks that you must be having the best time of your life because <laughs> in some ways you are because that's what everyone kind of wants for dreams that would happen to a book when it comes yeah, out yeah it's a strange world to inhabit. I was, I've never met that many... I, I just had never been also around that people who were that posh. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like the... Is this in the publishing world, you mean? Yeah, the sort of like the it's scenes. a strange kind of... I don't mean Robin's not, and most, you know, the people <clears> I worked with are really down to earth, but like the... I remember the... This, it was shortlisted for the Sunday Times one, and they did an event at a kind of private members club in London, and it was just fascinating because it's just a different kind of class of people that I just kind of had never been around and never yeah. interacted with. Remember they introduced me as having written about the wastelands of a northern town. And I was like, well, it's Barnsley, it's not Chernobyl. <laughs> like, it's, it's just Barnsley after the recession. They've over-egged that slightly. Yeah, it's like the wastelands. Um, <laughs> and it was just stuff like that where, and one, one event for something, I can't even remember what it was, they, they, they would always kind of 
in a lot of introductions kind of make comments about my accent mm. or say he's going to read his poetry and I mean probably not this phrase but he's going to read his poetry in his fruity northern tones really? or something like it's just a oh. strange kind of world where you realise that you're playing for them a certain part yeah. or that's what they kind of imagined that remember when the book when the first book first came out and the independent said we write a piece about how grim it must have been to grow up gay in Barnsley and like write and, I was, and how books kind of saved you and I said I will write that piece but I had an amazing time yeah. and we, there was a group of us when we were 16, 17 we'd go out once a week like it felt like quite a friendly benign place to grow up mm. that wasn't without its ch- challenges but it wasn't kind of what they imagined which I think was some sort of like Jimmy McGovern yeah. kind of script <laughs> of a kind of hideous northern childhood but i think yeah often with the media and speaking to someone who has worked in the media quite a lot is they just want it black and white yeah they want you to tell a story that they you know it will sell papers or it will yeah it, people will be drawn in immediately you know <laughs> so you either fit the bill or you, you, know, you either do what they ask them or yeah they, they're not going to be that bothered about it yeah so it's a it's a shame really it's interesting like, and i think what i realized quite early on was that if you not that you play along, but if you just accept that what they're going to say about you, if he is the young gay poet from Barnsley, or he is the poet that writes about masculinity, hmm. or whatever it is, or the body, if that gets you through the door yeah. and allows you then to be able to say what you, you know, if they're going to give me that platform in the independent, but then also just publish whatever it, I end up writing, hmm. then I'm kind of comfortable playing into that. Hmm. So do you feel like you're playing a role almost? There's, there's you at home or the teaching, and then there's the you that turns up at you know these events yeah like i think it's a heightened because i'm in real life really shy really quite like would just rather sit on my own than read or like go home and not talk about poetry yeah so it's always a kind of performed version of yourself that has to even just turn up to literature festivals and events and stuff like that and be a certain not like a character but it's just a heightened version of yourself yeah that feel and it is with teaching it's just a slightly different version yeah i think yeah that's true um and then go home and just never want to talk about poetry. <laughs> ever. Um, At those events, did you ever end up on a, like a table? Because they always have those big tables, I think, don't they? Did you ever end up on a table with someone like really famous or intimidating or anyone that was... Probably. Think, oh, I, probably too, I probably did, and I'm probably too drunk to remember. <laughs> um, you know, people are people always kind of really pleasant and things like that. It was just a strange... That kind of side of it, I hadn't really been aware how it worked or how it existed I guess yeah so that was a it was just a big learning curve yeah it must have been nice to get in that Guardian one oh that was amazing it's no longer a prize now is I think I drank too much free wine that I bankrupted it that was the last year of the prize <laughs> yeah. they stopped it that was what the thing blew about the that budget was, on that yeah, yeah just blew it all <laughs> I mean I think with that one it was because the other stuff that it kind of got always shortlisted for was like poetry prizes mm. which I always just kind of think poetry is such a small world that people have already made up their mind yeah. whether they like it or not or whether they like you or not so no one's going to kind of look at the prize list and go oh I better buy that now because yeah. people have already read it or not or decided they don't want to with the Guardian one it suddenly meant that people that don't normally buy poetry bought it because it was a kind of cross genre prize and so just in terms of visibility mm. and kind of what I was able to, what I kind of got offered afterwards. A lot of the translations came because of that prize rather than because of the book. Because mm. it just meant people noticed it, which was really nice. In a way that I don't know if that happens with the poetry prizes, really. Mm. Um, but same with reviews. Reviews seem to have no impact on sales. <laughs> like be, beyond a couple of more copies. Mm. They don't seem to kind of lead to a... You can, so you can kind of... Even if it's like a, a sparkling review. 
Pardon? Even if it's like a really nice review. <coughs> yeah, it doesn't seem to like maybe like 10 more copies. Really? Which is interesting. The mm. only thing, because Penguin Random House have got this thing as an author that you can kind of log into and track your sales. Right. Which of course I do obsessively <laughs> yeah. every day. Yeah, who wouldn't? Just to check. But it's like, yeah, it's like, you know. Um, so I like, obsessively do that. And so like, or like if it's been, if there's been like a big review in The Guardian or something. You want to see the spike. Yeah. And then it sold like six more copies. <laughs> See, like, that's just interesting. Yeah. And the only thing that, for the second book, the thing that really spiked it was Alan Bennett mentioned it in oh. his, like, LRB diary and just went, oh, I've bought this book and I'm enjoying it. And that, more than anything else, mm. just was this huge spike for, like, a week and a half, which is interesting. So it's just the, the different things that we think have power yeah. or we think would shift stuff or the things we think we want yeah. don't actually maybe persuade many people. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? And as you say, probably, yeah, I mentioned from someone like Alan Bennett, people are so tuned into that kind of thing where someone like, I mean, I guess it's the, the horrible word influencer, isn't it? In an yeah, old-fashioned yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, it kind of is. Yeah. Because like, it's weird, like, with him, he writes that diary for the LRB, but then The Guardian did a news story about his diary right, there you that had go, been published. Yeah. So it's like that kind of level of like influence or fame where you yeah. think... Not only has he, not only is his diary publishable, but his diary is newsworthy <laughs> yeah. in of itself. Yeah, it's um, crazy, isn't it? Yeah, and that's you know I think that's reflective of you know you're talking about that sort of the media game, and it is reflective of the media. It's, it's sort of eating itself all the time, isn't it? Yeah. And so you've got to once you realise it's all this, this sort of big game, then you <laughs> kind of it's got to play be, it. Yeah, you got to play the game exactly. So was it always were you always really into poetry like from in school or did obviously with your dad must have been some kind of inspiration for you but was it was it something that you were set on early on or were you what were your interests elsewhere when you were at school? So like I think we did so there's me and my two older sisters mm. and we got we would just occasionally for like childcare reasons get taken with dad to stuff um to like poetry readings and things. Yeah, well, kind of like if he was doing like community work and stuff like that. Yeah. We got, I mean, the big thing it gave me was just that we, it meant we all grew up surrounded by contemporary poetry books, yeah. which is just such a rare thing. But whatever your parents do when you're very young, you imagine everyone's parents do, Yeah, which is also that weird thing. So I just imagined that was normal. Yeah. But I always had a model of, I mean, what I come up against a lot, even with uni students, is they're not really understanding what a poet is hmm. or what it could be and so i just had that really solid model yeah but then and so i would write like i used to love reading like goosebumps and things like that and then so i would write like mini horror stories and things like that and that's kind of what i was always interested in what's goosebumps i don't know what that is oh my god goosebumps is like um by rl stein and it's like a child's version of like stephen king and they're ah. like kind of 80 page little um kind of horror stories, right. kind of set in, like, American high schools. Okay. Um, but they were immensely popular, like, in the early, mid-90s. Right. Um, and have come back again now with that kind of nostalgia. Yeah. And, yeah, I'm kind of obsessed with reading those and kind of, like... And I used to want to write things like that, really. And then I think whatever your parents do, even if it's the coolest thing in the world, just becomes mortally embarrassing when you're a teenager, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, and it so, does, like, yeah. if they were James Bond, you'd be like, God, that's, like, so embarrassing. Why are they James Bond? Like, and so yeah. I wanted to be a politician for a long time. Oh, right. I studied politics at A-level. I did, like, work experience in the House of Commons. So you saw yourself as an MP. That that's was an really ambition. That's really what I kind of wanted to do. I was right. volunteering at that time for the Lib Dems. Right. And, like, doing door locking for them and, like, helping their local council candidates. So this would be as a teenager? Yeah, yeah. Right. I was an incredibly nerdy teenager. Um, <laughs> and like obsessed with like exit poll results and things like that. And then did work experience in between sort of my first and second year of college 
um, for one of the guys that actually ended up in prison for expenses fraud, right. um, Teddy McShane, okay. who's a really nice guy, he used to be a Europe minister. Um, <laughs> and then, and I was just really bored. You weren't looking after the spreadsheets. I was, it wasn't me. <laughs> I saw nothing. Um, and I think I was just really bored because like, I was like a young kid. He had like proper interns anyway. So I was yeah. like envelope stuffing or like just photocopying stuff, which was fine. It was amazing to be there. But I think I'd watch the West Wing <laughs> and imagine that politics would be like running very quickly down Lots corridors. Yeah, like shouting exciting <laughs> things. And I just thought I don't have it in me to do that kind of graft for 20 years yeah. that means that you end up in a position of power or kind yeah. of have to go along with things that you don't agree with mm. for a long time in order to get to a position of kind of power. Jeremy Corbyn being the only exception to that, I think. A mm. lot of kind of voting for things you don't agree with. And then I wanted to be an actor for a long time. Right. I was in a lot of youth theatre stuff, a lot of plays at school. I used to beg, beg my mum and dad to like send me to some sort of drama school in London rather than secondary school, like to go to Sylvia Young or something. Really? Yeah, and then like, and I used to love, and I loved being on stage. Who were your sort of inspirations? You know, I don't even know. Like, I just thought somehow... I just loved being on stage. Right, so it was more theatre rather than... Yeah, like theatre. Yeah. And, and I joined this, what was Barnsley Youth Theatre at the time, which was this amazing thing. We'd kind of do a play and, like, tour it round. You'd get a week of school and you'd tour, like, this play around other primary schools and stuff like that. And right. it was amazing. Like, it was this amazing thing that they did. What plays did you do? Do you remember? Just like Shakespeare ones. We right. did Robin Hood. We did <laughs> Wizard of Oz. Like all those kind of things. Yeah. Oliver Twist and things. <laughs> and and then I think it turned out in the end really what I liked was being on stage and talking to an audience. So I would often get in trouble for like improvising during Shakespeare. Right. Which is apparently a no-no. <laughs> You've got to stick to the script. Um, I can see why they might object yeah. to that. And I think eventually what I realised I liked about politics was kind of oration i was fascinated by speech writing and right. the kind of the skill of um, sam seaborn yeah sam seaborn and that <laughs> skill of crafting public speaking yeah. and kind of how that works and how how messages can be conveyed and yeah. so really it all ended up coming back to writing and just being on a stage and talking to people um and this ended up being so this has ended up being a kind of combination of those two things. Then when I was doing A-level, I read Tom Gunn um, and I read Philip Larkin hmm. and just started like doing, as everyone does when you start out, like bad pastiches of them. People might say I still do, but <laughs> bad pastiches of Gunn and Larkin. And I was all set to apply to, I thought I'll apply to Oxford, I'll do PP. That was the plan. I'll go to Oxford, I'll do PP. So it was still the plan at that point. Yeah, like, I, and this will kind of all happen. Yeah. And then I just thought, actually... <sighs> I wanted I wanted to do creative writing. Yeah. And so Lancaster kind of had an English degree at that point that had like a ma you could do a unit like a module of creative writing. So I ended up applying there. Um and that's where I went. So do you think you would might have got on the PPE course was that a, was I think that, so. Yeah. So it, it really was that sort of choice at that point. Yeah, like I think I and I never applied, but I think probably I would have I'd have had a chance of getting on. Yeah. Like I was doing really well at A level. Um and they'd need me for the quota, right? For the, for the people with a northern accent, yeah. quota. Um, and, and I remember I remember very distinctly saying at some point out loud, I just don't want to be around those sort of people. And, I'd have, and I don't really know what I meant by that. And I wouldn't think that now, other than I had a very definite idea in my head that the sort of people that would go to Oxford mm. weren't the sort of people who... 
I would get on with or who I would be kind of hanging out in with. In what way? I just I think it was a, a sense of a kind of class thing. Right, yeah. Or just a kind of se- social sensibility. Like I'd gone to a very sort of, um, a very certain secondary school, which was just the local one in Darfield, which yeah. was very, like I had a really, they looked after me really well, the teachers were really nice, but it was a very difficult school. Mm. And I look back now and think the teachers were like younger than me now. And difficult having, and like rough. Yeah, like yeah. really rough because yeah. it just had a bad, you just had a difficult catchment area. Yeah. And so I'd gone to like this idyllically small village primary school <laughs> and thought that life was kind of roses <laughs> and had this great home life. And then went to this school where people were routinely kind of setting fire to things, would come in drunk, were selling cat, where parents would come in and square up to the teachers, wow. where people were just openly racist to like the one non-white teacher, where there was a lot of violence and things like that. Yeah, that's a wake-up call, isn't it? And it was just 11. kind of like, oh God, this isn't... And I just wasn't prepared for that at all. Like I'd come from... Like I just wanted to learn. I was really nerdy. I, and it was just this amazing kind of shift. Mm. But I think what it teaches you is to be able to speak to all sorts of people. Because yeah. you just have to learn to not get beat up. Yeah. So then you can talk to the kids who would normally do that yeah. and make them laugh and kind of get them on side and be friends with them and help them with the work. But then you can talk to the teachers and you can talk to the other kind yeah. of like boffin kids. And you just learn very quickly to be able to socialise with a lot of different groups of people. Yeah. Sort of adapt your register. Almost. I think so, yeah. yeah. In a way that going to a... Um, a private school mm. or going to a kind of much um, posher school quote unquote teaches you to be able to speak to priv- speak upwards into privilege and kind yeah. of talk walk into a room and know that have the confidence to believe that you're the smartest person in it whereas a school like that I think just allows you to be able to talk to everyone mm. um, on their level um, so that was really useful but God, I was just if I remember for the first two years just being terrified mm. of like everything <laughs> of like just because I just was kind of bewildered that people like that and it sounds so nice. I just didn't know people like that. Like, like I'd grown up in such a quiet family. Yeah. And we're still like, oh, God, people are going to come to school and set fire to the curtains in the form room. Well, like, I think, that's yeah. That's going to happen. I think primary school to secondary school is a big culture shift anyway. Yeah, Because yeah. you're suddenly the little ones with all these, you know, adults running around. <laughs> but then... To, to go from such a sort of nice, you know, quiet primary school to a rough secondary school, yeah, that is pretty full on. It was a lot. And I, there was this one time, and then eventually it's like... I don't know. They decided that I would I should be head boy. Right. So then I had to do that in like year ten. Right. And then there was this one time, and they just like I don't. They were just. It's almost like they wanted me to get beat up. There was this one time when. <laughs> so kept said, pushing you into situations. Just, yeah, like just like look at this guy. He wants to be head boy and learn. And like there was this one time when someone had set fire to the toilets, and then someone had pushed one of the teachers down the stairs who was trying to evacuate the oh, kids, no. and then the police had come and they'd egged him. And this is so, all in one event. Like, all in one, like, hour spell. So then we obviously, that afternoon, it was, like, meant to be the rewards assembly. <laughs> so the head teacher stands up and goes, I'm just so mad about what's happened here today that I cannot give out these prizes. <laughs> Andrew, come to the front and give them out. So then I have to, like, <laughs> it's a really awkward year <laughs> 10 kid, like, walk master. to the front and, like, stand there and, like, give out these prizes. Oh, and it was no. just the worst thing. Oh, God. Um, but it was fine. <laughs> Oh, it is a brutal environment, isn't it? Yeah. Often secondary school. I mean, so was it was it a happy? You know, was it a good time then? Did you have a good time despite those challenges? Or? I think so. I got to go to Brussels for the day. Oh, nice! <laughs> which was like weird <laughs> to like look at the European Parliament because there was a teacher who taught French who was from France. Is that because you were so in- you'd shown such an interest? I in think politics? so. Me and one of the lads, and it was kind of like on a. It was aim higher when aim higher did stuff. 
So it was like us two from our school and then like two people from other schools. Because mm. we went to Oxford as well at one point, like on a bus for the day to, to just look around the university as part of one of those kind of schemes. Mm. Um, but I do have happy memories there. It was, just a, it was just a strange time as well because I was kind of figuring out that I was gay yeah. and sort of trying to come out. I mean, I know you mentioned that with the independent, you know, <laughs> they had their certain take on it. But was it, was it difficult at that time? It was just a weird... I just remember... I remember the first time I even heard the word was when someone called me as an insult right. in school, and I just didn't. A secondary school. Yeah, and I just couldn't fathom. I didn't. I didn't know what it was, but then I suddenly felt, oh, maybe I am, because you just grow. It's weird because because it's not really taught in schools, mm. and because Section Twenty Eight, which thing Thatcher introduced about kind of not promoting homosexuality. Mm only got rescinded when I was in year nine. Right. You'd, you'd kind of gone through sex ed, early sex ed, without it just being mentioned. Yeah. And so you just grow up with this weird space of kind of knowing that you're different, quote, or you're not, you don't kind of want the same things as these other lads around you, but not being sure why. Mm. And it took me a long time, like year nine, year 10, to begin to kind of figure that out. And it was only through, I think, getting the internet and then through just talking to other people my age, Oh, who said they were my age on like <laughs> on early social media, yeah, and just kind of having those chat, chat rooms, type, yeah, type stuff, just yeah. to kind of figure out what it was, yeah, which was still a really benign way to do it. Like I worry about kids now with kind of smartphones and stuff that mm. you type something into Google, very quickly find something quite violent or that you don't understand. Like yeah. I think that's quite scary. But mm. so I was able to do it in quite an innocent way. Mm. Um, so it wasn't that. It, so it wasn't kind of difficult. In that sense, and I never came out until I left, till I went to college. Mm. And that felt like a shift because she didn't have to wear a uniform and it was in town and stuff like that. But it just was a long, it was just a really confusing time. And I kind of had an eating disorder and I was far too skinny and I was struggling with that. And it was all just because I just couldn't, I felt like I, I just couldn't get a handle on who, who I was or mm. what I thought I was in that space. Um, so it took a while to figure it out but it wasn't it wasn't kind of kez or anything it wasn't that no <laughs> but did it did the, those things like the eating disorder you mentioned did that sort of start sorting itself out after you'd come out when you sort of felt yeah. more comfortable i guess in or more i don't know i don't know what the right way to explain i think it, so it, although i think i mean kind of body tyranny in that in the gay community is also horrific so it mm. took me a long time um, it took me kind of probably till my early twenties. You mean 20s. Like body shaming type? Yeah, stuff. and yeah. just kind of like there's a very certain aesthetic. Yeah, certainly that time that was presented about what a male body would look like and things like that. Um, so it just took me a long time to get control of it. Mm. Probably into my early twenties, and actually the way I do it now is just by kind of going to the gym and working out and being able to eat more, but still feeling in control of. Yeah, there's a really interesting correlation between mainly in women former anorexics and who are now competitive bodybuilders right because it's just control of the body bit control of diet and things like that but in a different way yeah I um, guess. yeah in a health a healthier in a healthier way yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. more acceptable i guess as well but, um, but clearly healthier is the key thing I yeah, guess. yeah yeah um but yeah so it was it was just a strange time like i was mm. just a all the other kids would go to like house pies and stuff like that and i'd be going to like my youth theater rehearsals and that was kind of my <laughs> little crew um but then I moved out when I was 16 and went and lived with a friend for a year right. when I'd just come out. And that was amazing. She was kind of, she had met her through the youth theatre. So she was kind of in her maybe mid-twenties. So she had a house that, 
and stuff like that. And that was amazing. Were your mum and dad okay with that, with the movie? I think so. I mean, it just seems... Now it seems like such a strange thing to have done. Or when I tell other people, it seems like such a kind of odd thing. Yeah. So I guess you didn't need to, I guess. In that, is that what you mean? In yeah, that like I didn't, didn't... Or like it just seems now... Like I was young to do it. Yeah. As well. And they supported me to do it, kind right. of. Um, but... Looking back now, why do you think you were keen to move out at 16? I think my, si- my, my sister just had a child who was living with us. <clears throat> and I just suddenly felt like I couldn't... I remember thinking I just need space, hmm. which is such a dramatic way of phrasing it. But I think there was just something about the house suddenly felt very full. I'd just come out and I thought, I just need to... I'm not going to be able to figure this out unless I'm allowed to kind of have my own space and just mess it up and figure it out. And so it right. just meant for the first year of college, I would just go out all the like, obviously, you live on your own with your friends, so you just go out all the time. Yeah, no curfew. Yeah, yeah, and just, you know, meet people and just kind of make mistakes, but figure it out and be able to kind of just get a handle on it. Yeah. And then after a year, the friend who I was living with kind of had met someone who wanted to move in. And we were living like students, really. Like, her brother would crash all the time, and she wanted just to kind of sort that out. So then I moved back for a year before I went to university, like, moved back in with mum and dad. Okay. So, um, but was it that, I guess that was a, a useful experience though in terms of God, that whole yeah. finding out what you wanted to do and was, who you were it was just the best it was like an amazing year like we'd just yeah. go out all the time and have fun but I'm still doing like really well at college like I still kind of went to college and studied and um, all that kind of stuff um, yeah um, and then and, and then thought because I'd done that that I would love university mm. and then really struggled was really homesick quite a lot oh, and, yeah. I, and I think because I'd done it at 16 i like, I'd had, essentially, uni experience for a year because I was kind of studying, but sometimes not going into class and, like, doing essays the night before drunk and things like that <laughs> and was going out all the time and went to Lancaster and suddenly was surrounded by people who'd often actually gone either through private school, through minor private school, or through, certainly through, like, sixth form at the same school. Mm. And suddenly that was the first time unleashed yeah, sometimes was the first time that they never really drank or ever kind of had that freedom. Yeah, and that was just a weird thing. So I was like, no, I'm here to study. Like I want to, yeah, just get, my, I wanna get first. Like I want to get a degree. I felt like I kind of done that part of it. Yeah, and so that was just a weird kind of dissonance as well. Yeah, um, yeah. And was it then? Because obviously, you know, your this your early or the first published poetry is pretty personal stuff, isn't it? Yeah. So when did that? sort of become apparent that that's how you well when that when did you start doing it in that way or you know how did it evolve in terms of what you were writing it's interesting because the first pamphlet that came out when I was still an undergrad was really personal and was probably very close to the stuff that I would write now Hmm. and then it got a really bad review which is fair enough because it was quite bad it's a pamphlet (laughs) that just said why would anyone care that what about these kind of teenage angsty poems like this is not what poetry is and because I was just like young and susceptible to that kind of thing I thought oh god they're right they're right they can't be and so I did this second pamphlet I mentioned earlier that was just really kind of ironic and playful and just not sincere or anything like that and then that came out and the first pamphlet had some nice notices or people had took notice of it and the second one came out and nothing really happened with it and mm. I think it's just because people could tell that I wasn't like I was pretending to be something else yeah and then after I'd left uni and kind of broken up with my first serious boyfriend and that's when I wrote that kind of long poem the kind of and the 
the recession had just hit and things like that. Yeah. Um, wrote the kind of long poem. And I just thought, actually, this is all I can do. I, I'm th- This kind of really sincere voice is really all I've got. Hmm. And I'll just lean into that, really. Yeah. It was interesting. Before the first book came out, I was trying to send those poems out to magazines that were in that first book in physical, and nobody would publish them. Every poetry magazine we could name, we're rejecting them. And I just kind of thought, this is it's fine. This is all I can do. Like, this is maybe it's just not what people want. Hmm. Um, so it took a while. It's almost like how it initially came out, and then I ran away from it for a while because I thought it wasn't fashionable, which it wasn't for a long time. Um, and then I just kind of kept at it, I guess. And got better, I guess. Yeah. Or, you know, you became more, yeah, like saleable product. Is that how you see it as well sometimes? Well, well, it's interesting because when the first book got to come, my editor sent some poems out for me that then got accepted. Right. When I was sending stuff out for the second book, I mean, I think before a first book, you're sending stuff out just to keep your name out there for years. Yeah. With a second book or with subsequent books, it just seems to me the only reason to have stuff in magazines would be to advertise the fact that a book's probably on its way. So I just sent stuff out very close to when the book was going to come out. Got accepted by the magazines that rejected everything from the first book, and then they put my name on the cover to sell it. And I thought that says something. My work, I hope, has got better. Yeah. But it's not dramatically different. No. Like, the second book is very much almost like a prequel to the first. It's If you didn't like the first book, mm. you're not going to like the second one. And I just found that process really interesting, that suddenly... That validation almost. Yeah, that, but also that, as you say, I just wasn't now a saleable name. Yeah. And they were going to stick my name on the cover as a way of selling it. Or, like, if I was at a festival, they were going to use that as a pull to... Mm make people buy tickets and that was an interesting shift because mm. the work is not necessarily about the work or the work hasn't some the work's not got so dramatically better to deserve <laughs> that it's yeah. still the same stuff i was sending out before yeah it, so I, I often kind of talk to students about that because i think it's reassuring to them when they get you know rejected a lot like i did when you first start out and still do it's just a sense of often sometimes it's not just about the work do you the, still get rejected now sometimes um but I send much less stuff out. Hmm. Um, so I write quite slowly. Is uh, that just part of the part of the gig, you think? I think so, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's nearly always right. Or if they don't <laughs> like it, you can send it somewhere else. Yeah. Um, I guess it's so subjective, isn't it? That, you know, it's just, it just all depends on who the person reading it and what's yeah. going on in their life and what, you know. I think, I mean, what, I, what it took me a long time to realise was that not everyone would like everything. Yeah. And when I first started out, like, I think I was sending like, pamphlet ideas out to people that like like oyster catcher who published these amazing but like avant-garde strange poetry pamphlets and like obviously they didn't want my sincere <laughs> teenage love poems but i had no sense that like there was that kind of difference yeah or like that you know now i know that pn review probably wouldn't want my poetry because it's not no. of that kind of style and that's fine i still love reading that magazine yeah it's just that it's not for them it took me a long time to kind of get a sense of the ecosystem of poetry yeah of Oh, that's the kind of house the specialisms style. of each. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah. Um, which just meant for the first couple of years, I was just like scattergunning stuff out that obviously <laughs> they were going to reject. Yeah. Um, whereas now I just, I kind of know yeah. which editors like my stuff and which ones don't, and that's fine. Yeah. And I'm not offended by that. Yeah. I still read their stuff. But it's like in the same way that you don't like all types of food. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or films or anything like that. <laughs> Just thinking as well, just you mentioned, uh, you know, when you moved out at 16 and you suddenly your dad became, un, was uncool, you know, like what he was doing. Is it funny thinking back now that you're doing the same, or not the same thing, but you're doing, the, you've got a similar 
sort of you know what you're doing is it nice to be able to share that with him now yeah it, it, that's been really nice actually just to have a kind of guide through it yeah or to have someone to share it with because it's such a kind of specialized and niche world mm. that no one really cares about outside like the things that we find exciting in poetry no one really cares oh, i've just got a poem accepted in this magazine like you, you could be saying anything but it does touch a lot of people doesn't it, people, it does. a lot of people emotionally connect with it in but a way that, that, that's the weird thing about things. poetry that it occupies a very marginal place in people's day-to-day lives, but at central points. Because the thing you always get asked as a poet is, have you got, I'm going to a wedding or a funeral, have mm. you got a poem that I can read? Mm. Or after the Manchester attack here, like in kind of Tony Walsh's thing yeah. that went viral, yeah. people have a sense still that poetry speaks to high occasion, yeah. just not necessarily in their day-to-day life. But I remember like my boyfriend at the time, when I got accepted by Jonathan Cape, and that felt like a huge thing. And I remember telling him, and him being proud... But I could have equally said to him, I've just been accepted by the table and chairs press. <laughs> yeah. And it would have kind of meant the same sort of thing. And yeah. so what's, been, what's nice with that is just be able to talk about poetry yeah. in a really in-depth way. Yeah. And actually, what's been nice in the last couple of years, we, got a ha- we bought a house out in North Manchester with this kind of big garden. And so being able to talk to my mum about that, who's mm. always kind of done the garden at home and stuff like that, and that's kind of her creative space, I guess. And actually... For a long time, it would have been talking to dad about poetry and then mum about like the emotional stuff. Yeah. But to be able to talk to mum about something in which she's the expert yeah. and has the expert language, mm. that's really nice. Yeah. Um, and that's been a lovely shift in the last sort of two, three years. Yeah. And so what's next? I mean, I know you said you've done the, the play. Yeah. Um, are you looking to do more sort of, of that sort of type of stuff or fiction or I you know, are so. you branching out or are you... Yeah, like I feel like so I did this play with Proper Job Theatre in Huddersfield. That was amazing. A kind of retelling of Dorian Gray. Hmm. That's just finished its tour. Um, been working on some non-fiction. Um, really about the same themes as the um, poetry um, that my agents kind of got at the minute with a view to selling. I just feel now that I felt a real urge to do a second collection of poetry to prove to myself that I could do it, that that first book wasn't a fluke and that some that I could replicate it or it could happen again. Mm. And now I just kind of feel very settled in that. Um, I feel like the poetry will always be there. It, I've been lucky enough that it'll have a readership mm. that will kind of notice it if a new book comes out. And so I feel like I'm in a nice position to be able to kind of range around and try a bit of non-fiction or to try fiction and just to have a bit of to be new at stuff again. Yeah. And it might fail, but I feel like that's all right. I feel yeah. easier about that than if I did a third poetry book that was kind of terrible. Like, I feel like it's nice to just range around a bit. Mm. And again, lucky enough that people will will at least look at it, which is nice. Yeah, I suppose that's the good thing now, isn't it? You've got that position where people will take, a, you know, they will have a look. Yeah, that's the thing. And that's kind of nice. So it just means I've, I've got a bit of license to kind of play around, really. Um and just trying to do a lot more reading and I do end up doing a lot of judging. I quite like things now where I don't have to leave the house. <laughs> so that's my like ideal. Like someone just pays you to judge something. Yeah. And you don't have to leave the house. That's <laughs> like a perfect So they just gig. send you a load of books. Yeah, and they just sit and, and read them. Yeah. I can do that. That is not. I'm yeah, I suspect that's my that ideal. Nice. Just never leave the house. <laughs> <laughs> With that in mind, I've got three questions that yeah. I ask everybody uh, that comes on the, that's come on the podcast. The same questions. Um, the first one is, and we touched on this a little bit with you saying writing on the bus and all that kind of stuff, but do you have like a, a routine 
that you, if you say you're doing a writing day or you're doing a writing morning or, you know, you're sitting down to write, do you have a routine that you go through first? No. <laughs> I'm terrible. I don't write every day either. Um, I think oftentimes people say you should write every day. I try and read every day. I try and do something connected to poetry every day, which mm. might be just reading a new book, doing a bit of editing, reading a review. I tend to get up not as early as my father. <laughs> um, I don't think anyone does. But I will tend to get up quite early and try and do until nine. If I'm not in the office early, mm. try, and do some, try and do that work until nine and then think the rest of the day is free for whatever else kind of comes. Um, so there's those kind of two hours, maybe between sort of seven and nine, where I can just about think, um, right. or I can kind of concentrate on something. And then the rest of the day tends to just be emails and things like that. Okay, so you get that sort of burst yeah. in the morning. So when I kind of think best, really. Um, and when, and then I feel less guilty throughout the day. I think the issue with having a full-time other job is that you often feel very guilty about not writing. Yeah, so or, you get it out of the way, basically. Yeah, get it out of the way, and then kind of the guilt isn't there while following you around. sense of accomplishment. Yeah, you think, oh, I've done a little bit, that's yeah. fine. And, yeah. and then actually... I was looking at like new poems I'd had since new poems that I've got since the second book. It builds up very quickly if you do it like that. Mm. But I've never really had a routine. Um, I'd probably be more prolific if I did. <laughs> I should get one. <laughs> second one is then when you look back over everything, is the what's the thing that you think you're sort of most proud of? The, the you know the the thing that happened professionally, or in whatever way you want to think of it. But when you think back and you think, yeah, that was. That's the, that was a great achievement for me. I think the first book and just the kind of 18 month run that I had with it in yeah. terms of like nominate awards and just coverage of it. And I kept everything. Like I put it all in boxes and it's not because I'm really vain. It's because I do think that it's, it's quite transient. Mm. And I think like in 20 years time when everyone's forgot who I am, <laughs> I want to be able to kind of get the box out and, and like with the kids or whatever and be like, oh, look, I'm not making it up. <laughs> look, look at all this really stuff, happen. like this did happen. <laughs> um, but it was just a kind of, uh, and at the time I couldn't, I couldn't take it in. Hmm. Um, we went on holidays. How old were you then? Pardon? How old were you then? I was 20, oh, I was 26 when it came out just. Okay. Um, so I was young, young really, I was isn't young. It? I was yeah. really young for that kind of stuff to yeah. be happening to you. Um, and it just it didn't stop and you kind of just had to ride the wave but now I look back and think that was it went better than I could have hoped for mm. um, and just meant and it just also meant despite the falafel despite the falafel moment <laughs> which is you know um, that's why it's best now I do podcasts in the morning yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. the financially the way that I was perceived in the writing world it shifted everything mm. and so everything else be it quieter or louder or more exp whatever kind of happens now it just kind of bumped everything up. Um, so it's that, really. I was really proud of that. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's not happened yet is uh, Vintage are reissuing this great novel called The Man Who Fell In Love With The Moon by Tom Spambauer. It's just my favourite ever novel. It's the one is I it? give to oh, everyone. Right. It's amazing. Um, this kind of queer, western, weird novel about love, about the body and stuff like that. Mm. And Vintage are issuing it, and they asked me to write the um, like the introduction to oh, the new what, thing. What an honour. And actually, yeah, more than anything, actually, probably that I've ever written that just felt like oh that just felt like a real moment to be asked to do that so had you mentioned it in an interview or something and i think yeah like it. every time i do one of those like um five books that you yeah, can carry yeah. with you that's the book i'm always kind of going on about because it's very rarely talked about right but i did a workshop with him when i was an undergrad he came to lancaster <laughs> and that just transformed the way i wrote right and so it just felt 
to be asked to do that yeah that feels like just the best thing i've ever been asked to do even beyond my own work mm. so yeah that connection with what really inspired you yeah and that's coming out in um, january 2020 and i advise everyone that i've ever given it to hasn't liked it <laughs> <laughs> so i don't know if it's just me but it's just such a good novel somebody else must like somebody it else must like it yeah <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. And then final one then, yep. you touched on it a little bit that you, you know, try and read every day, but what are you enjoying at the moment? So is it, it could be a book that you're reading, but also like what you, to TV or music okay. that you're, what are you really enjoying at the moment? That's a good question. The poetry book that I've really loved recently, which I thought would get more kind of shortlistings and things like that is Lavinia Greenlaw's new book, which is called The Built Moment, which is just sublime, particularly the first half about her father's um, demen um, dementia hmm. and just an ability to write about something that is beyond language. Yeah. Um, on TV, um, the show called Pose, oh, which yeah. is this American um, show that's come over from America about a kind of underground kind of drag, ball scene in America during the 80s and 90s but talks so beautifully about kind of trans identity about AIDS and things like that so it's just, just an astonishing piece of art I think mm. um, and then every day I just listen to as many podcasts as I can mm. to try and keep on top of the world and so podcasts are really what I end up consuming the most oh, of what are you listening to so I have this I mean you said about writing routine but my kind of routine of to try and keep my head of the just make sense of what's happening in the world is I listen to the Financial Times daily um kind of briefing yeah. and then i listened to anderson cooper's oh, american yeah. one See and then i listened to the guardian huh. um in focus the kind of daily one that the guardian do the kind of in focus one yeah each morning just to try and get a sense of <laughs> what on earth is happening in the and world is that and on your sort of commute or is yeah that? on the kind of commuting or kind of from waking up and kind of getting into work right. and stuff huh. um and then actually because we mentioned goosebumps there's this amazing <laughs> goosebumps podcast is that? called welcome to deadcast where it's these two young gay twins in America who are like rereading the entire Goosebumps series and just Amazing. talking about each book but in this wonderfully kind of camp funny <laughs> kind of way where they're bringing in pop culture and stuff like that and I remember when the, I did that thing for the Observer that what's on your radar kind of cultural highlight thing yeah. and I put that in and people were so mad because like normally people are like oh I really enjoyed the new Rembrandt exhibition yeah. and I was just like really like this Goosebumps podcast and like the comments underneath are just like who is this guy what's he saying <laughs> that is the amazing thing though isn't it about you know the the way that the media has changed with podcasts and youtube yeah. and all that there is a place for that and yeah, if yeah. you if there is someone for whatever your passion is <laughs> so whether it's goosebumps or anything yeah. else there is someone else who shares it and who you can share in that experience like the west wing weekly is another one where they're just going through week by week an episode of the west wing and talking about it I'll just indulging people's nerdiest yeah i mean the best one actually one of the best ones for writing is this one called The Comedian's Comedian, which is just long form, hour and a half long interviews with a comedian. Mm. But not about, not where they like tell jokes and like do their set, but where Stuart Goldsmith, who's also a comedian, is kind of interviewing them and going, so when you craft that joke, yeah. why is that the punchline and why is it not there? And it's taught me so much about stagecraft okay. and about actually how to read, how to read poetry. Because right. it's all about like how you inflate and deflate tension in a room and stuff like that. But for writing process as well, I found that one fascinating. Mm, yeah, podcasts to seem to be the new... The, the kind of area where I seem to be consuming most of my stuff. Really. Yeah, well, me too. I just find it such an exciting world now. There's so many... Because you can really find what works for you. That's yeah. the thing, I think. Yeah, yeah. 
in a way that you know the radio serves a purpose, but it's still quite it's still you don't know what you're going to get when you turn it on. Whereas if you the podcast yeah, yeah. world, you can zoom in on what you like. That's the thing. It's like when you open your app, it's like you've created your own yeah. perfect notion of what Radio Four could be if it was only for you, <laughs> haven't you? Kind yeah, of thing, you have, really. Yeah. yeah, you have. So yeah, it's a great world. Well, thank you for coming on this one. Well, Much thank appreciated, you. Andrew. It's been a pleasure. That was Andrew McMillan then. Thank you to Andrew for speaking to me. It was a great pleasure uh, to talk to him. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. And uh, it was great to, to visit the corner house, as I said, and great to hear Andrew's stories about you know his journey to where he's got to now. Um, please, if you like this podcast, uh, subscribe to it, like it, leave a review. It's all much appreciated. It all really helps. If you want to get in touch, Again, as I said at the start of the podcast, please do. I'd love to hear from anyone who enjoys these episodes. We've had more than 40,000 or so listens and downloads, so there's plenty of you out there enjoying it, which is great. I'd love to hear your feedback. So creativeforcespod.gmail.com or at creativeforcesp on Twitter. See you soon. 